Now say these words after me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Even to the very end of the age. These are the very words of God. Please be seated. You ever notice that we often save the most important thing for last? You ever notice that? It's usually the stuff that we say. It's the very last little bit right before we go. Um, uh, and, and probably the best example I have of this is my mom. And maybe um, some of you have seen or done this. And I'm sure uh, as our children age, we are going to do it as well. Um, and it's one of these things where uh, you, you get ready for whatever. You're going to do this. Maybe you're going on a trip. Maybe you're going to school. Maybe you're going anywhere that you're going where your mom is a part of getting you ready or helping you think about it, whatever it is. All of these conversations happen. All of this stuff goes on. And then there's this moment right before you walk out or maybe if you're visiting her before you leave to go home, whatever it is. And she almost always saves the most important thing For that last moment. Usually two things from my mother. Honey, be careful. I trust you, but I don't trust all those other people. And I love you. Just this really important stuff. You know, it's like you just want that to be the last thing that's said. Just this crucial little bits. So it's interesting to me that Jesus would save this stuff, these pieces, to be the last, some of the last words that he would say to his disciples. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It's interesting, really. In my, in my thinking, my, my way of coming around it, what that really means is that, that he's prioritizing this. That God in the world is saying that disciple-making is the thing. It is the primary thing. You are called to make disciples. And so am I. And for all of my life, I mean, I memorized this when I was a kid. Maybe uh, you're a young person and you've memorized this one. It's one of the first ones that you did or you can remember that. There's songs that are sung about it. All these kinds of things come from this scripture. It's a powerful, important cornerstone scripture of our faith. And a few years ago, something struck me about it. It changed the way that I think about it. And so here is the disclaimer to what we're about to talk about. When I told my wife what I was going to talk about this morning, Kathy said, Oh, you're going to talk about that? And I said, I think I'm supposed to. And she said, Then I'll pray. Because what I want to invite you into is a conversation that in some ways is not easy for the church today. It just tweaks me a little bit. Maybe it'll tweak you. For some of you, you'll think, yes, I've been thinking that for a long time. For others of us, it'll be, huh, or 
a disturbed little way. I don't know. But I'm okay with all of those, like it or not, and everything that comes with it. It's not about me or about you. It's about the conversation, and it's about becoming, right? So I want to invite you into this conversation. So a few years ago, as I was reading Go and Make Disciples of All Nations, once again, in that thousands upon thousands kind of way, I began to think, as I do sometimes, a little uh, alternatively about the Scripture. And what I began to think about is, why, why doesn't it say other things? Therefore, go and blank. What would you say? Right? Jesus is on His way out. What would you say? Therefore, go and... So I started to think about what it doesn't say, and it started to make me a little bit uncomfortable. It doesn't say, therefore, go and have large attended worship services where a pastor can speak out the words of God in such a way that everybody can be inspired for the week. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, therefore, go and do uh, potluck dinners that bless everyone that come. It doesn't say, therefore, go and have an excellent class on Jonah. Therefore, go and bless your children. Therefore, go and do this. Therefore, go. I mean, it doesn't say any of those things that I know in the Bible and in our world are worthwhile and beautiful and God loves them. It says something else. But the one that really struck me, the thing that really kind of rocked me and made me rethink the way that I'm uh, really leading church and, and, and wanting to change the way that I think was realizing that it doesn't say this. Therefore, go and make believers. It does not say, therefore, go and make believers. It does. In fact, and this is when we may get pushed a little, Scripture does tell us, even the devil believes and he shudders. What does it mean that the devil is a believer? That bothers me. Does that bother you? With all the energy that we've put forward to make people believe, to be convincing about things. Now, I don't want to back off of that. There's some really beautiful things about it. I mean, after all, biblically, again, it says have an answer when anybody asks, things like that. Those are amazingly important. Paul goes through all kinds of stuff to invite people into the faith, being grafted in. Those things are good, wonderful, beautiful. But that's not what Jesus says. Is it possible that as the kingdom, we've missed a priority? Is it possible that we've been making believers when we're supposed to be making disciples? I'm convicted of that. I invite you to that possibility. So what does it mean then to become a disciple or to make disciples? How does that actually flow together? What does, it, what does it change in the way that we do things? Well, what's interesting to me is if you, if you look at things like the Industrial Revolution, where all of a sudden in the history of our world, things began to be really in, in a much faster and more efficient way. We began to organize things so that things could come out down a line and people could take part. And we could do so much more with so much fewer. We, we had that roll into all kinds of different ways to organize the world and even understand things flown out to this idea and that idea and it rolls right up into the ideas that we have in corporate world today where we have the very best leadership development going on and so somewhere back in there what's interesting to me is that the church the kingdom we 
decided that that is the way that we should structure ourselves as well. That what we might be needing to do is create the right classes. If you go to this class, and you can go to this class, and you can go to this class, kind of like we're putting people on sort of a, I don't know, some sort of machinery to get them out to the Jesus-like person that we hope that they would be. Now, those classes are great, don't get me wrong, but I hope you're understanding what I'm talking about. Have we been trying to do this? Have we been trying to mass-produce what can only be handcrafted? Have we actually been trying to put into a machine the thing that can only be apprenticed? I think I have. I used to think that that's really the way we would do it. it it's funny, at, at Riverside, even when we first got out there, um, what, we, what we thought we needed to do is create like a series of things. People will go to like here, and then they'll go to here, and then they'll go to here, and then they'll come back around to here. And we had this kind of thing laid out, all nice and pretty. And we did it, and have done it, over the last four years, three or four times. One of them we called Riverside University. Yeah, and, and I took a whole lot of trouble from the pastoral staff around here for having Riverside University. Oh, can you get my, can I get a PhD from Riverside University? Oh, are there emeritus class? You know, I got all kinds of stuff from Riverside University. It's just one of the three or four ideas that basically, whenever at Riverside we've set up a class system, we've set up this kind of deal, um, it's almost as if God says, no, that is not what I want you to do, and He pushes it out into the middle of a great pond, sets it ablaze, and lets us watch it burn. And that's not fun for all the energy that the leadership put toward something like that. Or what happens is people will come to this class because they like the teacher, they like the topic. There'll be 40 people in there that first Sunday or that first Wednesday night or whenever it is. And then the next Wednesday, there'll be about 30. And then the next Wednesday, there'll be about, you know, 17. And then, whoa, we go back up to 20. And then by the time we end, there are about 11 that have stuck it out to finish. But most of us in the process of this have a whole lot of half-taken classes tucked into our pockets. And we're wondering why we don't feel satisfied about the life that the Bible seems to offer. It says abundant life. This doesn't feel abundant. But I know there's something right about it, so I'll keep at it. What if it's this discipleship stuff? And I got really broken by it. I was like, oh man! You know, when I look at... You know, when you come to a crossroads, it says when it comes to the crossroads, ask where the ancient paths are. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will receive rest for your souls. So I was like, all right, Lord. This is one of those times when I realized we can continue going down here or we can come over here and find out where that ancient path is. What is the ancient path of discipleship? And I looked back into that scriptural place and what I saw was when God walked in the world, He spent all of His time with a handful of people. Here and there, big speeches. But his daily life and his daily teaching, even the Sermon on the Mount, go look at it. It says, and he collected the disciples unto himself. Everything about that? The disciples were the ones that received the Sermon on the Mount. And what they did with it brought us here. Not big crowds. So I started to wonder about it and get defeated, really, because I don't know how to do that. I know how to do classes like you wouldn't believe. I can make some awesome pamphlets and be very inspiring about how they're going to be great. 
And underneath, I'm desperately afraid that nothing is happening at all. And so I said, God, what is the deal? Why does it seem this way? Maybe it doesn't seem like that to all of you. And if it doesn't, that's great. And there's some transitions that are happening. And that's great. But for me, it was hard. So I said, God, what's the deal? How can I? And almost immediately, a hilarious set of events happened because I think God is terribly funny. Now, when I was a kid, um, there are some things, and maybe you, you weren't like this, but I was definitely like this. When I was a kid, I would swear to myself and often to my parents that I would never say or do what they said or did to my kids. Why are you laughing? <laughs> oh, I'm not alone, yeah. So here was one of them. Often, uh, when we would ask my mom, Hey mom, what's for dinner? Really what we were hoping she'd say is macaroni and cheese and chicken fried steak. Every time. And if she didn't say that, what we would say is, Oh man, I don't want asparagus. So my mom started saying the same thing every day. Hey mom, what's for dinner? Good food. Now when you're nine, that will drive you insane. What's for dinner? Good food. What's for dinner? Good food. I know it's good food, but what kind of good food? Really good food. And I swore, I'll never say that. I'll always say, we're having chicken fried steak, macaroni and cheese. Would you like some ketchup? Pie? Absolutely. Ice cream? (laughs) Of course. So not too long after I had prayed that prayer, my desperate, uncomfortable, and silent and personal struggles with discipleship, I'm in my kitchen, and my nine-year-old comes around the corner. Dad, hey, what's for dinner? And I'm agitated, and I'm worn out. And I'm cooking, because we have a full house right now, which means that our cooking, our food level isn't quite as what I'm about to claim. So I may have been lying as well. But what I did was I turned around to my son standing in the middle of the kitchen and I said those words I swore I would never say, looked him right in the eyes, and I said, good food. You know what he said? Okay, but what kind of good food? And all the answers, really good food, get out of here, you know. And it dawned on me in the kitchen. Wait a minute. I've been discipling him for nine years. And I was discipled by my parents. Wait a minute. It may not be such a foreign thing, this ancient path. Maybe, in fact, I believe now, we're actually wired to do this. We're naturally wired to disciple other people. It's why that generational thing is connected. Our young don't leave, they stay. Grandparents, even biblically grandparents, are the blessing of their grandchildren. We're wired, created, developed and loved into a possibility to be disciplers. You and I are naturally wired to disciple, to handcraft, not to mass produce. And I got really excited. And so we started. I started to think about, who has discipled me? Besides my parents, I'll tell you flat out. 
what I should do every time I introduce myself anywhere I go is to say, good morning, my name is Scott Hare. And my father in the ministry is David Bignitsky. Because the truth is, I've sat in his office, at his dinner table, at the foundry, at Starbucks, God forbid, and all these other places. And he has discipled me to become more like Jesus every single week. I started to think about it and I realized, I I call it Talk 37, uh, or I change the number all the time, but Talk 37 is the talk where he says, how many nights a week are you away from your house right now? And I'll lie and say three, and he'll say that's one too many, and really it's four. So you need to only be gone from your family two nights a week. And he'll be on me until I'm back on a healthy rhythm. I realize that simple piece of discipling has saved my marriage. And let me be a good father. Not rocket science. Just real life. Sitting down with somebody and talking about life, the Word of God, and praying together. So, as fellow people wired to be disciples, commanded by Jesus as the most important thing, For all the nations, how are you doing at discipleship? It's new to me too. So let me suggest something. I need you to pray that this week you will run into someone that you believe is to disciple you. Or that you are to disciple and that you ask them to coffee. That's it. What you will find is that you will begin in a natural and very real way to become more like Jesus. And then you will pass that inheritance and it will be passed over and over again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything that I have commanded you. And then the best part. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Pray with me. Father, we come here this morning and we hear the rain on the roof and we are reminded of your refreshing spirit. We hear the thunder and in your voice we know your strength. We struggle with all of the things that have brought us here and of the challenges of your word. Let us arise from these seats ennobled with the reality that we are disciplers and to be discipled. Let this church and all churches that come anywhere near it and all people that ever grace its shadow Know that it is a discipling church, making disciples, making disciples, making disciples. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.